including me and including you. Second, the eternal length of his love. See, cultural Christianity is tempted to believe that as long as we obey Jesus, we'll have a sense of his love. There's like these two parallel tracks, the love of God for us and the love of God from us to him. In other words, cultural Christianity says this, Jesus is my ride or die. And the gospel says the church is Jesus' ride or die. In other words, we can't outrun it. Chapter 1 of Ephesians, Paul bursts into talking. He's He's in house arrest, if you don't know this, likely shackled to a Roman guard in a home, and he's dictating this letter. And for the first two chapters, he's been teaching the, the meat and potatoes of the gospel. The gospel of grace, not of works. And he begins where we don't expect him to begin before time. And he says God has always had a people. Always had a people. He has always been after creating and redeeming his own. He has predestined them for adoption, he says. But remember, he gets to chapter 2, and if you don't know this, chapter 2 introduces our need for chapter 1. He says that we're dead. Eek. We're not sick. In other words, we don't participate in our healing, Paul says. We need chapter 1 in the face of chapter 2. This is the eternal length. It knows no beginning, and by his grace it knows no end. It's unfathomable depth. This is what I want you to hear. Without the depth of the love of Christ, it is all an abstraction. Sentimentalism goes to die here. Even our deserved hell wasn't a price too high for him to pay. The love of Jesus overcomes our sin, every disease, and Satan himself. It reveals and and reminds us of the painful truth of our brokenness and our rebellion. And church, it literally has reversed death. This morning, please hear this, that your sin does not repel him. It draws him in. In fact, it's the only thing that qualifies his church for his love, their need. This is the depth of his love. Finally, Paul describes its height poetically. The unsearchable depth of this love serves as a divine slingshot where the pain of love gives way to delight. Exaltation is in order. Redemption becomes Adoption. The not guilty verdict gives way to the invitation to come home. There is nothing like his love. Nothing. It is incomprehensible. Hear this. It is the only substance that grows the more that it's given away. This is gospel math. And like a kite... The harder you tug its string, the higher it flies. Don't you want that? Do you want that this morning? Our Northampton brother, Jonathan Edwards, says this. There is such love and grace in the love of God. Excuse me, there is such a love and such a grace in the love of God that if you understood its length, its breadth, its height, and its depth, 
Church, you would never be discouraged. How? (laughs) How could something so sublime become boring to us? You ever thought about that? Why is it that the church is constantly tempted to, quote, move on, to learn something more? I offer a couple of reasons. First, we're trapped in a world that craves variety, novelty, and experience. To my embarrassment, I remember the haunting thought on the eve of my wedding. Will I love Dory forever? Will I get bored? Another reason, and the one I think this text begins to point out, is this love is unknowable. And you may be thinking, well, what? why would that make it boring? Well, to put it negatively, this unknowable, this unsearchable love has the result of this, I think, in our Grinch hearts. It's unmanageable. It's uncontrollable. In a culture that prizes, promotes, and praises experts, we cannot master the logic of his love. It's like mathematic theory. It seems to go on and on. And this, my friends, I think is the story of all of our lives where if we became Christians as children or if we grew up in the church, there's this childlike wonder toward the gospel. That as we grow, and maybe it fades slightly into optimism, and as the pains of life hit to confusion, and as the demotions and failures and divorce and sin and cancer hit, it grows, it becomes a source of frustration and dismay. Where are you, Lord? And finally, it can return into a stone-cold cynicism, a.k.a. adulthood. You see, we're all kind of like Woody. See, I'm using this juvenile inference so that we can think about this in a childlike way. What does he say to Buzz? You can't fly, Buzz. You're a toy. And what's Buzz's disillusioned mantra? To infinity and beyond. Well, this morning, Paul says, Woody is right. But Buzz shares God's vision for the church. We cannot control the love of God and his gospel. In fact, it has to control us if we stand a chance at discovering the wealth of its riches. Okay? So our banner this morning is is that his love is incomprehensible. Verse 19, I want you to know what's unknowable. And of course, we ask the question, well, how? And so first, he, he does, do you remember the Acts, prayer, A-C-T-S, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication? We started with adoration. Paul adores, he, he worships God by praising this immeasurable love of Christ. And now we're going to move to the work of Christ's love or the supplication. How does this work? God, we need your help. And so we look at verses 16 and 17, where he says this, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with a power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. This is a rich, rich verse. Let's think about this together. First, he prays that that something would be granted to us. Paul 
uses this word as well as other New Testament writers to describe something that's given by a person in authority. To be granted access is, is, is the gift of God according to his benevolent authority. In other words, he's praying that the love that he just worshipped God for only comes to us as a gift. I remember when I turned 16 and I got my first car. My first car was actually my mother's car. And so I'd been riding in this car for a number of years. I knew the ins and outs of this car. In fact, I made it better when it became mine. And I'll never forget it, the day that the keys became mine. Right? It was, it was this transfer. I'd been in the passenger seat many times, and now all of a sudden the freedom and the joy of this gift was mine with the gift of these keys. Paul is asking God to give us the keys of his gospel love. You can know about it. You can understand different elements about it, but you can't experience that freedom of a young new driver exploring the love of God without him giving you access. He's praying that he would grant us this love. And then he prays specifically that, that, that we need something. And it's the words he uses to be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being. We don't have a capable energy grid with a capacity high enough to handle the intensity. That's what Paul's praying. Our energy grid is fit for a small town, a Grinch-sized heart. The love of Christ is for a massive metro. We don't have the innards to experience it. To use another metaphor, the faucet of Christ's love has much too much pressure than our plumbing can handle. So we're incapable of access, grant, and we have insufficient infrastructure. If you were given this love, we couldn't handle it. We would evaporate. And so he prays that the Holy Spirit would remodel our souls. That's a holy makeover. I hear there are buildings in this city that have been around hundreds of years, some of which are being held up by the building next to it. This is a small picture of this. We don't have what the, the, the foundation and the, and the inner infrastructure in our hearts to handle the love of Christ. And this is where his prayer concludes. So we not only need access, we not only need access to a certain power that comes from God himself, but it's for a reason. What does it say? So that Christ may dwell. In other words, Christ must move in. The one who has the love must arrive. It must dwell with us. This is the same word that the gospel writer uh, John uses in chapter 1, where, where, where it's described that, that God has come to tabernacle with his people. Dwell is this connotation of a permanent address. It's a place of settling down, not an Airbnb. The gospel says this, that Christ has come by his spirit to hang his pictures of his church in his house, you. To settle his favorite furniture in you. He's come to dwell. You remember that experience uh, the effect of COVID on all of us where maybe, maybe our occupation was, was in person 
And so we experienced that super disorienting years-long season, and it still lingers where we're, we're, we're basically remote. We've all kind of learned to work in sweats, um, except for you doctors out there. Um, and, and maybe you've had this experience where this was your transition, and then now you, you're invited to do like a team retreat, <laughs> or you're, you're invited to come back to the office two days a week, right? And, and you remember pre-COVID thinking that, you know, Jerry and Susan were great people. And then you return and you're like, man, I didn't, I don't remember her being like that. I don't remember him acting like that. There's a new proximity that you'd almost forgotten. You see, when Christ moves in, there's an intensity that we're not yet ready for. He sees all of you. He sees your pet sins. He sees all of your secrets. He sees all of your hidden and locked away shame and all of your guilt. And he doesn't leave. He doesn't leave. Do you sense that love? God can see all of us. And instead of disgust and relocating, he nests. He shutters the windows of our lives. Though the storms of life come, he's one of those people, so to speak, that stays as the hurricane tracks. He battens the hatches. He moves in. This is too much to handle. Have you ever experienced that awkward interaction where you've been looking at someone in the eyes a little bit too long and you're really ready to kind of move away? Um, like, man, you've been looking at me. I've been like, I want to make, this is the professional thing to do. I want to engage here. Uh, research suggests actually the same part of your brain is used to formulate your answers while um, making eye contact. And so for some of us, including myself, that when they answer, they kind of have to look away to think. This is why. But prolonged eye contact, if you have a significant other, you know, is a source of intimacy, right? Why? Well, biologically speaking, oxytocin is released. I'm not trying to speak out of my depth here, but as I understand it, this is that attachment hormone. This is critical for a mother and a child to, to be attached. It's eye contact. You see, when Christ comes to dwell, he has come to make eye contact. And we want to squirm, and we want to look away. We're totally embarrassed. We do not like the nearness with which he longs to be with his people. And friends, the good news is he's staring not to condemn, but to attach so that we would begin to see the costly, costly love of Christ for us. How does our Savior do this? How can a holy God dwell with an unholy people? We talk about this every week, right? Before Christ can dwell with his people, he chooses to let our sin permanently settle on him. Not to be confused with our sin infused with his divine DNA, not at all, but it is in fact applied with the same permanence that he intends to dwell. This is 2 Corinthians 5 language where we become the righteousness of God. In church, he doesn't do it out of obligation or reluctance, but out of a love that passes all understanding, all knowledge. Are you tracking? Are you seeing that the love of the gospel in Christ is a love so divine it cannot be grasped? 
And yet we're invited in, right? We're invited to take off our logical, rationalistic tendencies, and we're invited to wonder at a sort of love that grows as it's given away. And the only way that we begin to take this in is when God himself masters us with his love. Removing our debt, moving in, applying his righteousness, staring at his church so that they would grow. Grow in the knowledge of his love. Two points of application here. We're nearing the finish line. The first is this. You will not discover this love alone. Verse 18 says this. May have strength to comprehend with all the saints. All the saints. The primary means by which a believer comes to have a heart knowledge of the love of Christ is in community with other believers. Full stop. Have you ever wondered why you keep suffering from shame-riddled episodes of disobedience? Could it be that you're isolated, disconnected, though of course you're physically present with other Christians? For Christians, other Christians are our sanity. Has anyone shared the gospel with you and you believe, though you've heard the message so many times, have you come to someone confiding with them and instead of the response of, uh, oh, why did you do that? That's awful. You were met with the gospel. Has that ever happened to you? And has that same moment not been the very source, like, oh, I actually can believe. I can believe in God. See, the confession that the PCA subscribes to, one of the places that Travis actually sort of mentioned it here, the providence of God, the way he takes care of his people, he put it. He uses what he refers to as, or what our confession refers to as, ordinary means. Ordinary means. He used frail, sinful preachers to to reach his people for Christ. And he uses the body of Christ to convince the body of Christ of the gospel. This will all remain theoretical to you unless you're in tangible community with other believers. Second, there's an evidence that, that we, the church, are beginning to receive this unthinkable love And it can be seen in our posture. If you look at the very beginning of our text, verse 14, it says, Paul says, for this reason, right, those chapters 1 through 3 that we've sort of mentioned, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. We probably run right through this, but the average Jewish man did not bow. He stood to pray, often with his hands open. And not only that, he refers to God as his father. What do we see here? We see Paul doing something very intentional, very purposeful. And he's saying that I have tasted the warmth of the gospel. Remember how the psalmist refers to it? Our being the apple of our God's eye. And its effect, a desire to obey. Paul is saying here in verse 14, I am the child of the Father and I'm the subject of my King. <laughs> our hearts, our Grinchized hearts, we, we think, think about this example for just a moment. Why do we lack self-control? Most of the church instinctively thinks, well, because I don't have willpower, right? I've, I've tried to stop drinking too much. I've, I've, I've tried to not be 
uh, you know, an addict of productivity. I've, I've tried to, to lower the workload, but I can't. I need, I need more willpower. And yet the most natural and default reaction of spiritual failure in my life, and likely in yours, is to change our view of God from a loving father to a condescending taskmaster. This is the reason that we lack self-control. Where am I going? Friends, only, only, in and through the love of Christ purchased for you by his blood will you change. The shoulds of life are like, you know, a small tank of fuel. They burn hot and quick, and they're gone. And we need more shoulds. We need more pressure, right? They don't work. But the grace of God, the kindness of God, remember that, leads to repentance. If you want to grow, it'll only be in discovering in community the, 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 the love of God in Christ. Is this the evidence of, of your life? Perhaps not physically, standing or kneeling, although we did do that this morning. But is your heart, does it see God as its Father and its Lord? I'm going to close with a return to the Grinch. You'll forgive me. In the 2018 version of the film by Illumination, which I highly recommend, um, I'm going to close with this scene. High in his lair at Mount Crumpet, Grinch wrestles with Max, angry, frustrated, bitter, and annoyed. They're still celebrating down there, and he doesn't know why. And to his surprise, there's a knock at the door. Puzzled, he gathers with Max at the door. He peers through the window, and he notices a small child, Cindy Lou Who. Reluctantly, he opens, and before he can say anything, she says, Remember me? Still puzzled, <laughs> Grinch looks as Cindy Lou embraces the dog that he half hates. She says, I just came to invite you to our house for Christmas dinner. What, me? says the Grinch. But I took your gifts. Yeah, I know. And your trees? Yep. I stole your whole Christmas. I know you did. But we're inviting you anyway. And as Cindy Lou turns to walk away, Grinch shrugs, really confused. And he asks, but why? Cindy Lou pauses and turns and says, because you've been alone long enough. Dinner's at six, don't be late. Grinch arrives in a tie, forgiven and dignified for the first time. He's seated at the head of the table with the most important job of the night, to cut the turkey. Friends, Christ's love defies logic. Stop trying to understand it, to master it, and would you this morning begin to receive it? Amen. Heavenly Father, we pray. Um, that by your spirit and your word, that we would begin to believe that the gospel is true, that our Savior is alive, and that he is about the business of making his bride holy and blameless until you return. Lord, I pray that you'd meet each and every one of us here this morning with, with all of our stories, 
with all of our hopes and fears. That in such a way that only you can, careful as a surgeon, that you would meet us and begin to bind us up, to stitch us back together, to help us to see yet again that our sin, though costly, only God himself could pay the penalty, was what you chose for the sake of your bride. I pray that a love this compelling would actually cause us to lift our heads, to embrace you once again, to get over our shameful, arrogant pride or self-pity or get over our disbelief and cause us, we pray, to run towards you and to find your deepest embrace in the gospel. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.